Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Bird. Tonight, he's been one of Canada's most successful indie rock artists for the past 20 years. And now Montreal's Sam Roberts and his Sam Roberts band are back with a new album. A lot has changed in music and in his life since he burst onto the scene back in 2002, 2003. And he takes us through that journey, talking tunes, time, fatherhood, and trying something different on this new album called The Adventures of Ben Blank. We wrap up our series on collecting collections at collectors with a look at just how much pop culture has influenced the scope and value of collectibles over the past few decades. Imagine a first-generation iPhone still sealed in its box, sold for something like $40,000 recently. You could buy Rocky 1, 2, and 3 VHS cassettes sealed in their boxes. That'll cost you about fifty grand US. We chat with the pop culture consultant at America's biggest auction house about what is valuable and what gives it value. But first, we head to Saskatchewan, where a controversial bill on the use of pronouns in schools has received final approval in that province's legislature. The new law prevents kids under 16 from changing their names or pronouns at school without receiving parental consent. It was temporarily suspended by a court in the province, but the government used the notwithstanding clause, can you imagine, to override certain charter rights and Saskatchewan's human rights code to allow it to proceed. So what was the rush? Was the notwithstanding clause necessary? We find out. Let's head to Saskatchewan first, where that controversial bill on the use of pronouns in schools has received final approval in the legislature. That happened today. The new law, of course, prevents kids under 16 from changing their names or pronouns at school without receiving parental consent. It had been temporarily suspended or by a court in the province, but the government is using the notwithstanding clause to override certain charter rights and Saskatchewan's human rights code to allow it to proceed. The Premier, Scott Moe, says it's about supporting kids. He disagrees with criticism that the law would harm LGBTQ youth. Does lying to the parents have that same uh, opportunity for a negative outcome? Does hiding that information from the parents um, in any way improve uh, that outcome? What we want to do in a very structured way is actually emulate um, what many school divisions have already, already have in place across this province. Yeah, I mean, he's never really been able to explain this one properly because I think there were about 18, they got about 18 complaints and that's why they went ahead with this. So, I mean, it's obviously, there's obviously a lot of politics involved in this. Speaking of, the opposition New Democrats there fought the bill and this is leader Carla Beck uh, voicing her concern. In a small minority of cases, teachers will have to choose between shoving kids back in the closet or putting them in harm's way. Perhaps not surprisingly today, uh, there is a new poll out that shows the Premier Mo's Saskatchewan party, uh, its popularity is shrinking, with support for the provincial NDP growing. Uh, and again, 51% is where the Saskatchewan party is. That's pretty good. NDP at 45%, though, in climbing. And in the province's two main cities, and this won't come as a huge surprise, but in Regina and Saskatoon, support for the NDP is at 59 and 65%, respectively. So some big divisions there. Uh, that poll was conducted between October 4th and 6th, right after Premier Mo declared an emergency recall of the legislature to get this quote-unquote Parents' Bill of Rights uh, passed. Joining me now is Murray Mandrick. He's a political, political columnist with the Regina Leader Post. Uh, Murray, thanks so much. Well, thanks very much. Very nice package. Okay. My compliments to your uh, producer. That sums it up nicely. Yes, indeed. Uh, the deed the deed is done, so to speak. I mean, I think we, we, we've arrived here. I think for all of us outside of Saskatchewan watching and looking in, it just seems to have gone nuclear very quickly, and it's hard to understand 
why because it seems like it was such a non-issue beforehand and all of a sudden you know uh the premier is going right to the wall with it and it's hard to understand why i don't know either it's obviously there's political elements in it and one political factor is the emergence of a rural-based right-wing challenger uh, in what is called a Saskatchewan United Party uh, that won a by-election in August, or didn't win a by-election, came second in the by-election, the South Party won, I'm sorry, in uh, August. And for whatever reason, notwithstanding the fact that uh, Premier Moe's Saskatchewan Party still received 50% of the votes, and notwithstanding the fact that two other by-elections held simultaneously, in Regina, uh, Premier Mo's SAS party candidates were crushed. His obsession has been this issue and this party. This party, the Saskatchewan United Party, ran on this notion uh, of parental rights, which seems to be exported from the United States and, and a bit of the language that you're hearing uh, in Republican circles these days. But somehow it's caught hold in rural Saskatchewan in particular and elsewhere. Uh, and as you say, it kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, there was one particular issue with a Planned Parenthood uh, lecture to grade nine students where some kids uh, obtained what I think would be safe to say would be uh, age inappropriate material uh, in in terms of of uh, sex uh, teachings right. at that time. And that became a bit of an issue. From from there, it grew into this whole other thing and into this whole issue related to uh, transgender kids and specifically kids that are concerned about telling their parents um, that they are using different pronouns for whatever reason. I think that there would be very, very few examples of that. I think generally people, our parents in Saskatchewan are like, parents everywhere else that really would want to help their children through this process, but there's probably a few parents out there that don't much understand either. And as per uh, the Premier's comments in your clip, uh, you, know, you know, he asked, why would, why does it help hiding things from the parents? It wow. doesn't, but sometimes that's just the way it works in this yeah. world where there's difficulties. Well, clearly, if you're if you're not telling your parents, there's a reason, right? I mean, I think I think that's where Scott Moe has sounded so tone deaf through this whole thing, is that he he keep. I mean, there's been a litany of people who've come out to oppose this and say, why are you doing this? First of all, you know, the schools seem to have a good grasp on how to handle this. Um, there aren't, you know, this is not a major issue, but the kids, for the kids for whom it is, it is. So why bother trampling on their rights and using the notwithstanding clause, for instance, just to get this bill passed when it's... And and all that the judge had come up with was sort of a temporary injunction to say, okay, let's talk this out and figure this out. And I've just, you know, it's it's been a surprising one to watch from afar uh, to see what the party's been doing. What it's has the reaction... I mean, watch up close, too. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess. What has been the overall reaction, though? Is Does it have support? Because I saw some poll recently about priorities for people in Saskatchewan, of course, affordability is the top one and this one was way down like four percent thought it was important well this is the interesting thing ben because this is a politically smart political party and leader he's he's unassuming to many people outside uh, outside the province but those of us who have dealt with him have uh somewhat admired his his uh, political uh, cunning in terms of his ability to understand political issues and get on the right side. Maybe he is on the right side because it's an easy message 
to sell to parents and grandparents and people that aren't involved, the whole notion of parental rights. Well, who's going to say that you sh- your parents shouldn't have rights if, 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 if it's left at that? Obviously, it's one of those catchphrases that uh, translates very easily into uh, uh, you know, easy political conversation and dialogue. It's when you delve into it a little deeper that it becomes problematic, and that and then you start it starts raising questions. Okay, if you use the notwithstanding clause uh, to uphold parental rights, what happens in divorce uh, uh, settlements and agreements where there's specific things decided by court? or by agreement that one parent will do one thing in terms of raising the kid and one parent will do the other, or that they'll raise the kid in, the other, in, in, in a certain way. It, there's far-reaching implications in relation uh, to family law. You talked about the difficulty of why a kid might not want to tell a parent, at least initially. Sometimes uh, parents or teachers become the conduit to parent to help them through uh, this process. And once again, I can't emphasize enough we're dealing with an incredibly small portion of elementary school kids or junior high school kids that would be affected by this. There's not huge numbers of kids transitioning or using different pronouns. There's some kids that want to be allies to other kids and might change their pronouns or or whatever. But generally, this is an issue that affects virtually no one, you know, the 0.001%. And I think, as you outlined, we have the Children's Advocate in, in this province. We have the Human Rights Commission uh, in Saskatchewan opposing this. One uh, commissioner resigning over this because she happened to have a transgender kid. All this is happening. The Trial Lawyers Association uh, in, uh, in in this province, the uh, University of Saskatchewan law professors, all telling the government, slow down, this is not working for you. This this is the kind of thing, because of its ramifications, that you really have to think through. None of this has yeah. registered. The good word that you use is tone deaf. Murray Mandrick is a political columnist with the Regina Leader Post. We're talking about Saskatchewan today passing uh, that pronoun bill, that controversial pronoun bill, in a special emergency session that was Parliament was recalled just for this. Um, Murray, you wrote a really interesting article about about the the government essentially paying almost no attention to the debate over this in the House. They they made up their minds and they didn't want to hear from anybody else. They were, you know, earbuds in, phones out. <laughs> it was it was a pretty funny column, but wow, that's that's a lot of disrespect on an issue that is let's be honest, this is an issue that uh that is passionate for many people who have been criticizing what, what Saskatchewan is doing. Well, it, to be quite frank, it's passionate on on uh, both sides. Normally any bill passing uh, uh through our legislature requ- or, or has a maximum of 20 hours debate. They doubled it uh, to 40 hours for this debate, but that wasn't really a a moment of uh, magnanimous generosity on the part of the government. They were trying to make a point. What we do normally, and I don't know if other legislatures do this, but legislation's introduced in in the fall, and it's passed in the spring sitting because it gives an opportunity to discuss the very things we're talking about, uh, abilities for lawyers, judges, stakeholders to review the law, to find out if there's anything that needs tweaking, etc. Well, this bill needed an awful lot of tweaking, and that's putting it rather kindly. Um, but the problem being, it, it, get, it gets back to the notion that this bill is being driven less by need than it is by politics. 
And so the government right. decided very early on it was going to ram this bill through. It was going to get it through in five days as opposed to having it do what we normally do and, and just have it simmer over a month period uh, to ensure that there's no problems with it, to maybe even get a couple of appropriate amendments uh, in legislation put forward by oppositions or whomever that actually might make the legislation better. That's what good legislators do. They would have none of that. Uh, in terms of the 40 hours, the government refused to speak on uh, the bill in terms of the bulk of the second reading uh, debate. That was all done by a pretty small opposition of, of just 14 New Democrat members who kept the clock running. Uh, the government obviously spoke to the bill outside the, the assembly and spoke to it at the appropriate place in, this, in the assembly in terms of the committee as a whole. But uh, really... There was no good, solid defense of this bill as something yeah. that was pressing or in need of. Even when you asked the government where this is coming from, they point to 10,000 parents, grandmas, aunts, and 10, uncles 000. that they've talked to <laughs> that they said oh, were, they? was driving this, but they produced no yeah. one. And the 18 letters no, I, or, uh, to which you referred to came up in the court case in which they said that was yep. the only evidence they had. We've been trying to FOI those 18 letters, and the government won't reveal them. Uh, they wouldn't reveal yeah. them to the court. So, like, we're highly suspicious of them. There's we're been more. There's, I mean, there's more letters written about about stop signs, you know? Group, and that this yeah. is the driving force, and that this is just an idea that caught hold, and the government dug deeper and deeper and dug its heels in, and now here we are. Murray, I have, a, I have about a minute and a half. I, I know, I mean, Wabkanoo's just won. The NDP have just won in Manitoba. Obviously, we have an NDP government out here in BC. They did pretty well in the Alberta election, although they lost. Uh, is Scott Moe kind of feeling feeling something? Is he seeing something in his rearview mirror that he's worried about, do you think? Well, I, I think he's a little shaken, panicked, maybe a bit. But we're, we're not Manitoba. We're not Alberta. There's no danger of Scott Moe losing power to either the right or the left. The NDP are far removed from what you might have known Saskatchewan uh, NDP did, used to be in the Tommy Douglas, Roy Rowe, no Alan Blake the, yeah. uh, days. There's no real hope of the NDP uh, taking power in here in a realistic way uh, because the, the SAS party is just that strong in the country. And unlike Alberta, we don't have huge cities like Calgary and Edmonton that have the influence. We are still pretty much divided between uh, you know, rural communities, smaller cities, and Regina and Saskatoon. So there's no real super worry. I think it'll be a closer house because of things like this. Uh, but this government seems horribly paranoid about losing votes to the right, or uh, con- or perhaps they're using this uh, uh, the right to basically push an agenda further right. And uh, there is a significant amount of division in this province right now, a division uh, like I haven't seen in a while because they've always said in Saskatchewan people are one step off the farm, where they really are or aren't, I'm not so sure. But right now it is really divided between young, old, urban, rural, right, left, and that's a bit of an unfortunate thing, and this bill is only dividing it further. Well, you're not alone on that one. Uh, Murray, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for asking me. It's 1986, Newark, and Michael Morrison is offered the opportunity of a lifetime. A new job that comes with a fresh start, a secure future, and a badge. 
But that badge is about to change Michael's life forever. I realized I joined the biggest gang in America, law enforcement. The badge is the Brotherhood, and it comes with immense power. You guys, as police officers, will have more power than the President of the United States. What's unique about policing is you have authority attached to it, along with a firearm. And in the wrong hands, the results are horrific. That is the trailer for a new podcast series on Curious Cast called Black and Blue, Behind the Badge. The first episode came out this week. It's a really interesting way of looking at a problem that I think we've talked about. It's been released in partnership with Chorus Waterside Studios and an independent podcast company called Blanchard House. Uh, journalist Saren Jones, who you heard there, dives into the stories of black police officers in the U.S. and one in particular. She follows the story of Michael Morrison. You heard his voice too, a cop near Newark, New Jersey. He grew up in Newark. He sees the opportunity that policing provides him in terms of a salary, and security, amongst other things, but soon finds himself in a career that makes him question everything he knows about justice, the community, racism, and himself. Serene Jones, uh, Sarah Jones is a journalist and host of Black and Blue Behind the Badge. She joins me now. Thank you so much. What a great series. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. This is such an interesting story, and you pointed out, in, even right sort of near the beginning of the first episode, it's a story uh, that should be heard and is not oft told. Uh, but it, there's a personal thing here that's happening. Part of this inspiration to do this came from your own experiences of living in America as someone who grew up in Wales. Exactly, exactly. You know, this is a story that I've been really curious about for the best part of 10 years now. Um, and kind of moving to New York from South Wales as a young Black woman, I was expecting to see the Blackness and the representation that I didn't have at home, you know, so representation across all different fields and spaces and arenas. And one thing I noticed was that despite, you know, um, a lot of cases of police brutality involving African-Americans being in the news during my time in the US, there really wasn't much representation when it came to Black police officers or Black people in law enforcement in general. So, you know, this is something that's played on my mind over time. And it's something that once I became a journalist, I decided to investigate and look into. And there was a few very critical moments in that path of yours. There was first Eric Garner uh, back in 2014. I think most people remember that story on Staten Island. And then Tyree Nichols later, which which added a completely different dynamic to that story you wanted to tell. Exactly. And, you know, both cases were extremely tragic and were cases that, you know, should not have happened and were extremely preventable. But what happened, especially with Tyree Nichols, you know, that happened, you know, obviously earlier on this year, you know, mid-production for us. Mm But in a way, it made the podcast much more relevant because, as everybody knows, you know, the case involving Tyree Nichols also involved five black police officers. And this is a show about black police officers and their experiences. And, you know, it just kind of added to the substance and the complexity of the journeys that these guys are on and the identities that they that they have and that they grapple with as well. How difficult was it to to break that thin blue line, so to speak, to get? Because I think perhaps one of the reasons you don't often see um, black officers speaking out in, in a different way is just because it's not easy to do so. So people are reluctant to speak against uh, the police brotherhood under any circumstances. It must have been difficult to find a voice to tell this story. It was extremely difficult. You know, it's a really, really sensitive story. Um, it's It's one that you know, is extremely emotional for a lot of people involved, you know, whether you are the black police officer we're involving, whether you are family members or friends of that officer, whether you are the white colleagues of that officer. But, you know, 
we wanted and I wanted to do the story because these people exist. You know, we're just not very used to kind of hearing their thoughts, hearing their voices, hearing their opinions when stories about law enforcement and police officers does break the mainstream media. And like I said before, a lot of the times those stories involve African-Americans and unfortunately involve fatality. So we were really fortunate that, you know, not only Mike Morrison, but, you know, three other black officers from New Jersey also decided to come forward and they felt not only empowered, but comfortable to share their stories and experiences with us. Mike Morrison, Michael Morrison is is kind of the, uh, is, is a pretty incredible example of, of the, of the duality here in some senses, because mm-hmm. he comes from a background that would suggest that getting a job like that is not something you, you turn your nose up at. Like it's a good job. At the same time, the complexities of having that job, given who he is, come out very clearly as well. Totally. You know, Mike is an example of somebody who just wanted to better his life. You know, um, he grew up, you know, in Newark. Um, he's very transparent about the poverty that he experienced as a child and was at a very young age, you know, man of the house and had to get an income somehow. And, you know, his grades at high school weren't great, you know, didn't leave him with many opportunities. But one thing he did know was that police officers get paid really well and they get a pension. So, you know, it wasn't really his plan, you know, being a dark-skinned black kid from Newark to go into law enforcement, particularly when he considers the types of experiences that he had with officers as a kid. But, you know, he felt he had no choice. You know, he needed to make sure his family were okay and were looked after. And that is kind of where his journey in law enforcement started. It's interesting because he he mentions it. Does he see himself as a bridge? And one would think he might have to, or as you know, living behind this wall that is policing. I mean, when he made that decision to become a police officer, did he sort of cross over to the other side, so to speak, or did he still see himself as someone who could build these bridges that maybe he thought weren't around when he was younger? You know, it's it's very, very difficult. And this these are the kind of questions we pose, you know, throughout the show around identity, about duality, about can you be both black and blue? And, you know, can you ever separate who you are from what you do? But Michael Morrison most definitely sees himself as a bridge, you know, and like you said, the bridge that didn't exist when he was an adolescent. And, you know, that bridge is very much needed today. You know, trust in police and law enforcement is at a real low in general, but particularly with minority and, you know, more specifically black communities. And this show is about the story, the stories of those officers who spent their careers trying to win the trust of their communities. You know, those bridges are very much needed when we know that, you know, reviews like the Louise Casey review has shown that, you know, the London Metropolitan Police, for example, has been found institutionally racist or knowing that the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, you know, has fizzled out twice. You know, we need bridges in places like law enforcement that will, you know, encourage people who have traditionally been sceptical or distrustful of the police to actually believe that they are there to help protect and serve them. And you raised uh, you've raised it already, but I found found it interesting listening um, to the first episode, which came out this week. That this could be, I mean, this is very much an American story, and I've been to Newark, and it feels very much like a, in some ways, like a Newark, New York kind of story. Uh, but it could be anywhere. I mean, it, you could be a young South Asian officer in England. You could be an Aboriginal officer, you know, a First Nations officer here in Canada. I mean, there are many different groups that struggle with this idea of being part of law enforcement just because of the way it's seen. So this is kind of this is very much a universal story. Absolutely. It's a universal story in many ways. You know, it's a universal story in the sense that, again, going back to identity um, and the duality and having your very existence existence kind of questioned, criticized. Um, it's universal in the sense that, 
the town where we focus the majority of the story Maplewood is actually a microcosm of towns and cities across America. And like you said, you know, this is a story that, you know, isn't just relevant to, to the US, you know, it's relevant to Canada, it's relevant to the UK, you know, different parts of the Western world that we also touch on, because if, you know, institutions like policing are at a real low as they are, you know, com- community, you know, has a lot to kind of work with when it comes to how we're going to make things better and make sure that we can kind of function cohesively and collectively as one. So, you know, even though it is kind of based in the East Coast, it is it's extremely relevant to people, you know, all over the world. Saren, thank you so much. This is really a story that needed telling. It's so gl- grateful that someone's telling it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Ben. A disability is not something to overcome. It is something to be celebrated. That's the gist of what disability rights activist Spencer West says near the beginning of a story that will air on Global's Current Affairs show, The New Reality This Week, about disability influencers and the impact they're having on tearing down a lot of long-held stereotypes. Here's some of what he has to say in the story. Disabled folks just want the same experience as everyone else. You know, we want to have careers, we want to have social lives, we want to have potentially have partners and all of those things that non-disabled folks want too. Uh, Spencer West there, again, rather than accept persistent stereotypes about the limits of living with a disability, he's among a group of that are harnessing the power of social media platforms to advocate for accessibility so that it becomes normal for people with disabilities to participate fully in public life in all kinds of ways. Uh, The new reality tells the story of the fine balance they've struck between advocacy and entertainment, because of course, not only do you want to deliver a message, you want people to watch, uh, and how they manage to gain millions of fans and followers and begin to change how we see disability writ large. Brendan Leffler is a producer with Global News and The New Reality. He worked on this story and he joins me now. Brendan, thanks so much. No problem. Nice, nice to see to you. Have you. Nice to have you on the show. Watching it, I, you know, I don't think I really understood fully how much social media has been a game changer for people living with disabilities and their ability to get the message out. And that really comes through uh, in this piece. And uh, you found some some really good people to talk about it. Spencer West is, uh, what does he have, 3 million followers on TikTok? He has 4.5 million followers on TikTok. 4.5. Wow. He's on all the, the platforms. So yeah, he's got a huge reach. What did you set out to try to tell with this story? Because I think it's one that perhaps people will think maybe they've seen before or have at some point, but there's a lot of new stuff in here. It's, it really is a 2023 tale. Yeah, well, I mean, what we wanted to show people is that people with disabilities are like the rest of us and not to emphasize all the the things that they do despite their disability, but more to say these are remarkable people just based on what they do compared with anyone. Social media allows them to tell their story and to show us what the disability experience really is like without someone who's not disabled, you know, guessing at it or trying to portray it in a movie. These are the real people that are telling their stories genuinely, kind of for the first time. Yeah. Spencer West is in Edmonton. Uh, He had a genetic issue that meant that he had his legs amputated when he was very young. So he's lived with this disability for a very long time. One thing that he talks about that really struck me was um, the idea that it was so hard to get your message out because of the access that you, you can you can do social media from home and you can control it yourself. And that was a big difference for him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, mainstream media and traditional media Whenever they did something about 
a disability, portrayed characters with disabilities. It was always written by someone who didn't have that, who didn't really know what it was like. And disabled folks didn't really get an opportunity to tell those stories because people that were making those decisions, whether it be producers or casting directors, typically made the decision to use people that didn't have a disability because they didn't think that people with disabilities could attract an audience, maybe. And one of the things that's been so great about social media for these folks is that they're proven that they can attract huge audiences and that people are actually interested in hearing their stories, not only about disability, but if they're a comedian, that they're funny, or if they're an entertainer in other ways, that that they can be entertained and that people with disabilities can actually tell stories that disabled and non-disabled folks alike will be interested in. You know, I, I was obviously familiar with with the idea of sort of the villain, the villain with disabilities. We see it in James Bond movies. You point that out in the piece. I, I, I wasn't as aware of kind of the pushback against the sort of the hero, the idea that somehow some, you know, your great d- despite your, your disability, which is, I think, what how it's put by Spencer uh, and how that's also a really difficult one, because it, it it's just it's an unfair representation, right, to sort of lionize the fact that there are sort of Paralympians, for instance, because that in itself can be can be damaging. Yeah. And I mean, what it does is is Spencer actually experienced it. um, And we talk about it in the piece, but he experienced it when he climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. He was told by a friend, you know, I think it's great that you did this to raise money for clean water in Africa. But you're setting up an unreasonable uh, expectation that anyone can do this. And the thing is, is that people with disabilities, just like any people, come in all different shapes and sizes, and they come with different disabilities and abilities. And so taking, looking at, say, a Paralympian and going, wow, that's amazing that you can do that despite having disability, it sets up an expectation that if those people can do all that to overcome their disability, why can't they all do that? If you are, uh, you know, Spencer made the point that he uses a wheelchair as a mobility device, but he has his legs amputated and he can actually get around by walking on his hands. Right. Not all people with disabilities can do that. If you're a paraplegic, you can't do that. One of the other people you focus on in the piece is someone we've had on the show, actually, Taylor Lindsay Knoll, who started a very successful tea company. Now, she was an elite gymnast and had an accident, and and, and that's what happened to her. But but she, too, I mean, she's an incredible spokesperson and advocate, uh, but she's a really interesting one because, again, she came to this from a different place than Spencer. I'm wondering what you sort of noticed having those two people to tell this story. Well, it's really interesting that, you know, in Spencer's case, he had a congenital condition and lived all his life uh, disabled and without legs. And he was telling us that it took him for the first 30 years trying to uh, kind of come to terms with accepting that he had a disability and that that was okay. For Taylor, she was sort of thrust into that and she had to kind of on the fly become a different person, essentially. Her story is really interesting because, yeah, she started this business cup of tea and then it became one of Oprah Winfrey's favorite things. That launched her. And then she kind of decided, you know what? I can use this attention to make the world a more accessible place. And that's where social media comes in for her. 
Yeah. We, when we spoke to her, a lot of what she was doing was sort of calling attention to restaurants, not shaming, but calling attention to businesses that weren't accessible and how just how successful it's been in Toronto and outside of that. I mean, you always learn something on a story that you didn't know going in, even though you've researched it. Uh, and sometimes that's what viewers can walk away with, too. What, what was that in this case for you, Brennan? I think that what it was, was that disability is not a bad word. Spencer even said, you know, I'm proud to have a disability. What I learned the most is that, you know, we have millions of people with disabilities in our country and most of the country, whether it's the streets, the sidewalks, you know, not being shoveled in the winter so they can't move around. But we are losing an incredible amount of ingenuity and economic growth by basically not being accessible so people with disabilities often can't participate in public life, whether it be going to restaurants or having a job, going to an office, when with a few alterations, we could make all those spaces accessible and bring in the talents and perspective of a group of people that we've kind of traditionally pushed into the corner. Well, Brendan, it's a it's a great piece. Thanks so much for, your, for sharing some of it with me tonight. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, people uh, can watch it on Saturday night at 7 on Global. Would uh, love it if people checked it out. The reason I talked about time earlier and remembering things from way back and how time changes you is that it was 20 years ago that Sam Roberts, the Montreal indie rocker, burst onto the Canadian music scene. Um, his debut album, We Were Born in a Flame, had hit singles uh, like Where Have All the Good People Gone, Brother Down and Don't Walk Away, Eileen. He won three Junos for that debut album, including Album of the Year, Rock Album of the Year, and the Juno Award for Artist of the Year as well. So it was a big debut for Sam Roberts. He followed that up with the platinum selling Chemical City in 2006. Uh, in between, I mean, the list of things that he did right after the huge success of that first record. I mean, he played Sarstock in Toronto with the Rolling Stones. He shared the stage with Brian Adams for the halftime show at the 2003 Grey Cup in Regina. Live Aid and Barry in 2006. He was in when Cole Harbour celebrated Sidney Crosby's first cup win in 2009. Sam Roberts provided the music in 2011 on Canada Day. He played a free concert for tons of people on Parliament Hill, including Prince William and Kate. Uh, he's been touring and releasing music ever since. He's still getting award nods regularly, 15 Juno nominations and all six wins. But he's 49 now, and his Sam Roberts band is back with a new release called The Adventures of Ben Black, the first, Ben Blank, rather, the first full-length release from them since 2020's Juno-nominated All of Us. Um, the story behind the album's title is interesting, the, the Adventures of Ben Blank, because he kind of set off to release music under a pseudonym, you know, sort of like Bowie and Ziggy Stardust or The Thin White Duke. That didn't quite clear for him. So instead, he just did this one project about an alter ego, figuring out what it's like to shed some of that past and create something unexpected and different. And it's also about the passage of time. I mean, music has changed since that first record for him. He's become a father. You know, things are just different. And he wants that to reflect in the music that he makes, as opposed to simply making those same songs from 20 years ago over and over again. So The Adventures of Ben Blank is a concept record of sorts. It's been described about a character deciding to rewrite and untether himself from his past histories and move towards an uncertain future. I read that. That's, I thought it was a good line. Sam Roberts joins me now. Sam, thanks so much. It's a pleasure. Nice to be here. 
Congratulations on another new album. And, and yet this one must have felt, I mean, the last one I was reading, you know, when you released uh, your last album was sort of right. And you couldn't really tour for it, right? For all of us. It kind of came out right as the pandemic hit. And Yeah. What, so, what you're trying to say is it couldn't have come at a worse time. <laughs> essentially. Let's just, essentially. Let's, <laughs> let's just stop sugarcoating it, shall we? <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. I mean, the, the option in those, well, we didn't know really what we, but it just felt like we could, if if launching an album is like, incubating an egg it felt like we might be sitting on that egg for longer than we cared to so we just put it we threw caution to the wind and we put it out uh but i mean it was essentially like what it felt like was sort of taking a, a gone to seed dandelion and blowing and it goes off into the wind and you have no idea where it's going to land so yeah. this one feels a lot more um traditional if if that word still applies these days yeah i mean it's i guess so much has changed since you since your first records came out tell me about the adventures of ben blank it's a really interesting title of course my name is ben so immediately i was you know suckered into wondering who ben blank was well i mean the i i, I think we were just comparing ages we won't mention them yeah, fifty-ish, fifty-ish. In, in my case, on the other side, in your it's case, a, not quite. Like staring yeah. down the barrel. <laughs> um, and, and I think you know that might have had something to do with the, the idea of of writing songs around this. Again, I can call I can call Ben Blank a character or a persona, but I mean it's 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 a thinly veiled uh, autobiographical sort of work that way. But the idea, the appeal of this, of of shedding your old skin and and walking off into a future feeling sort of uh, unshackled by your past and your history and walking off with a sort of the ability to take in new experiences uh, without constantly weighing them against who you have, who you've been before, as much as we can ever do that. It's just more to me the, the sort of romantic appeal of that possibility and because i don't necessarily even want to do that but there's a, myself and because i can't necessarily do that myself i had to sort of create this vessel or this vehicle through which i could you know through through whose eyes i could sort of see this broad open landscape of a future which is i mean I guess we don't think of this much. And I always think of Bowie when you talk about, obviously there's many artists who've sort of done different things, been different characters over their lives and so on, is that in so many ways, uh, uh, artists are kind of trapped by their past to some extent because people expect them to do the same thing again and again. I was interviewing Ivan with of Men Without Hats, who you may remember from your youth as I did from yeah. mine in Montreal, who essentially said when they had their first hit, when that Safety Dance came out, the record company said, can you just write that song another 20,000 20, <laughs> times, please? Yeah. And he was like, well, I don't want to write that song ever again. I don't want to, you know, mm -hmm. you know, please do. And I, I guess I'd never really thought of, of the past being sometimes both great because it gives you the platform that you need to to make music, but also it can be a bit of a trap too, because people want to hear the same thing or some people want to hear the same thing over and over again. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely that. Uh, and I think that that's something that you have to sort of fight against as a, as a songwriter for sure. Uh, from, from the get go, I don't think you even realize how, how soon you need to sort of take that in, uh, to heart when you, when you sort of set off on a, on the path that is a, a music career that, it's again, I think there's this fine line between showing respect and reverence for where you came from, but also sort of uh, having your your eyes sort of fixed ahead on what 
what's around the next corner. Uh, because the past is an intoxicating place to spend time. And as we all know, intoxication is not necessarily the best state from which to create something new, you know, and, and uh, every album to me is a, is an opportunity to not to start over, but definitely to, to tread a new, a new path. Yeah, how does your how do your musical influences? I was reading, of course, I was a big Fela Kuti fan. My mom was mm -hmm. so, I, and my dad was the music guy in our family. My mom had more eclectic taste, and she was the big Fela fan. So, I remember getting into that. I think when De La Soul put out their Fela Soul record, I don't know if you ever heard mm -hmm. that. It's it's. Uh, I guess what tell me a bit about how what you're listening to impacts what you're making. I mean, it's a real. I got a real hodgepodge of musical sort of tastes and going back to my parents record collection which ran the gamut but you know i always love thinking about what my dad listened to in the sort of early 70s like just before i was born because it's very telling about what he might have been up to like pink floyd and hawkwind and all these sort of psychedelic right. bands which he can deny what he's doing but the music the music tells a different story you know and once in a while, I'll catch glimpses of like pictures of my dad in those days, like big sort of collars and big glasses and his hair was out and he's listening to Pink Floyd. It's like, I don't, dad, you don't need to say it in words. I already know what you were doing. <laughs> uh, so, but, uh, you know, my parents uh, just had a, a beautiful and still do a beautiful, broad musical taste. So I, I sort of listened to it to all that psychedelic music and heavy, heavy dose of the Beatles and the Stones and the Kinks. And, um, but I was also into reggae. I was also into uh, a lot of South African jazz music, which my parents brought over in their record collection when they, when they immigrated to Canada. I, I went through a heavy duty fella cootie. I still am. It's yep. a lifelong phase at this point. Uh, and, and all of that, that sort of mishmash of, of rhythms and different senses of, of melody have a play a huge role in in what I draw from when I when I try to write my own songs. Sam, it, it was interesting. I mean, you grew up in Montreal, as I did. Mm -hmm. I, I was an Anglo. You know, my parents are English speaking, as yours. Yours came from South Africa. It was an interesting place to grow up musically because you had both what you listened to as sort of an English speaking kid, looking maybe south to the U.S. or west to the rest of Canada, or you know, to other parts of the world. And at the same time, you had this really vibrant French scene going on around us, especially mm -hmm. in the 90s and, and into mm -hmm. the knots. And and it sort of created quite a hodgepodge of influences at the time. You must have had a bit of exposure to that, certainly as you were growing up. Oh, definitely. You know, and I, I think Montreal has become a less sort of isolated place than it might have been in the 1980s and 90s, where we were. It was, it was quite sort of, it was quite a closed system uh, the Hour magazine and Mirror magazine, which right. were our sort of weekly sort of free rags that came out. Um, that was a sort of be all and end all of the music business as I knew it. And to get your face into the magazine, maybe even on the cover one day, was the ultimate, to me, sort of uh, the ultimate in 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 achievement. It was a goal. And, it, and it, I think that goal was shared by just about every other band that, that we knew. And because of that, we we and because there was so little sort of outside influence in in the form of bands even coming into Montreal, not that many bands who weren't big name bands actually came and toured. A, a few of the Brave Souls did, but it, it really felt like we sort of 
developed our own little little world here and yeah. we would just sort of borrow bits and pieces of uh what was coming out of Halifax uh, what was coming out of Toronto what was coming out of uh out of the states but it was always sort of reshaped in this in the in the kind of way that you can only really get to when you do live in in a sort of bit of a bubble and then again throw in Strange Jean de Doux, like for yeah. example someone like that who was making this amazing sort of groundbreaking music in in French which we all you know speak as a as a you know almost like our mother tongue I suppose and I think it just sort of really expanded our definition as to you know what what constitutes a song and what does a life in music look like because it that life in music was sort of very much about what was it going to feel like if you could make music and live in Montreal we didn't yeah. think about I didn't think about world domination I still don't but you know or touring across Canada or spending my life on the road sort of touring around the world it, it was very much about trying to get a decent night at the pioneer in Point Claire you know yeah yeah, yeah, celebrating at celebrating uh, at uh, at Fafoon or something. Yeah, I mean it's yeah. it was quite a, an insular scene, and of course you have ties to that scene. If listeners don't know, um, the person who's produced your records these days was someone who was sort of a, a, a pioneer in that scene back in the late '90s uh, or late '80s, rather '90s. Uh, Gus from Imam and Morgenthaler. That's right. You know, I think Gus was on the cover of the Hour and the Mirror at, simultaneously, like every or like second every second week. week. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it yeah. was unbelievable. And and to that day, there's still there's still this sort of a bit of you know we're, we're all a bit starstruck that we're hanging out with Gus Van Gogh because he was such a big part of the idea of what a Montreal band could achieve uh, at a time when we were very very impressionable uh, young you know upstarts. What does he bring to your records now? Because obviously his his style. I mean, he's he produces lots of folks, but mm -hmm. you're among the you're amongst the biggest names that he does, um, and and he must bring a certain sensibility as well. I mean, you must feed off each other because his music tastes will have evolved, and the work that he's done over the many many years will have changed the way he approaches things as well. Yeah, I mean, Gus is a real sort of uh, he's a sort of a, a librarian of of musical styles and he has an incredible depth of knowledge about each and every one of them whether it's dub reggae to sort of the mod rock and roll to brit pop to psychedelic music and and what makes it uh, you know what what makes him somebody when you're working with him that it just sort of can bring your record to another dimension is that he can so easily reference or understand what you're referencing. If you're talking about that weird sort of guitar sound from a Primal Scream record or yeah. something, he'll be able to go, oh, he's like, I know exactly what that that is, you know? And he just has this incredible depth of knowledge when it comes to this sort of palette that makes up great records. Yeah. And, and because of that, there's just this fluidity in the conversation, which is where a lot of records that can be a real stumbling block between the, the the band and the producers when there's that sort of breakdown in understanding. Sometimes that can lead to great things because you're sort of trying to, you're trying to talk a common language and yet in not understanding, you'll unlock something new. Um, but, but with Gus, it's just sort of, we, it's you become one, one mind. Yeah. He could hear the jukebox in your brain, so to speak. Which exactly. Is, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. And it, and it shows on the record too. I mean, I don't, I don't know how much of this is him. And obviously a lot of it is, is you in the band, but there is that evolution. You hear little, little uh, influences of songs that, I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't sound remotely derivative, but you can sort of see where this, where the inspiration is coming from on certain tracks they're, and they're all quite different on the new album, which is, which is quite the accomplishment by the way. Yeah. Well, you know, and I think it's not that we shy away from, from, what we're referencing either you know if we're like oh you know that fleetwood mac drum sounds like we say it out loud just right. like that let's make the drum sound like fleetwood mac <laughs> there's no hiding sort of that kind of yeah. thing ultimately it comes out as your own thing because we're combining so many different uh pieces from and and sounds and references from different things and it's also channeled or filtered through the way that we perform uh the way we play our instruments the way we think about playing our instruments so but yeah, we we never sort of hide from who we're, you know, who we revere as you know either songwriters or as you know bands who've made the records that have sort of shaped our musical lives. Yeah, I guess there's no point in denying what's come before, right? When yeah. you're trying to, it's, I mean, it's not reinventing the wheel. It's, it's reinventing your wheel, but it's not reinventing the wheel. Yeah. We're just a we're just a branch on a much bigger tree, you know. <laughs> but we're all attached at some point to the same trunk, you know. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. You're doing some. You're you're heading out on tour, like a full on set tour. Mm -hmm. I know there's something coming up in Halifax in November or soon. But then, so there, there's like a big tour coming up in in the new year, which includes like two shows at the Commodore in Vancouver, Montreal. You're going to Buffalo and Detroit. It's uh, it's a big one. It must be exciting. Yeah, Halifax is the guinea pig. Right. So we're gonna. <laughs> We're gonna find where find out where we stand in Halifax, and then we'll we'll take our lessons from there. But yeah, this will be our first full tour. We've played lots of shows, but never in the sort of cohesive um, form of a tour. Uh, we haven't yeah we haven't been on one in five years now. Wow! Uh, and so, you know, hoping that the sea legs are still there, but uh, also just excited at the at the thought of sort of playing every night and what that does the sort of change in your psyche as as this as the tour white you know warms its way into your into your dna and how the songs sort of start to demand something that's very hard to come by in, in any other sort of format when you play music because every day if you just do the same thing every day it becomes a bit of a hamster wheel uh experience so the band usually finds this gear where you're fighting tooth and nail to pull something different out of the songs and to make them feel new every day and there's only really a tour can can make that happen yeah it's it's a it's great that you approach it that way i mean I, i've gone to see bands of late that i like you know but you go see bands where a lot of it's based on a light show there's a lot of there's a lot mm -hmm. of timing involved and unfortunately what that means is that if you look at the set if you look at the set list from the show they did three nights earlier or four nights earlier mm -hmm. or eight nights earlier it's the same show it's the same show night after night after night after yeah. night it must be great to be able to sort of feed off your audience a bit too to sort of see where that crowd is going on that night and how you can and how you can kind of uh, vibe is vibe is maybe the best word. Well, I can think that's of. that's good. Vibe works for sure. You know, I, and I think as much as your lighting director or your stage manager might hate the fact that you want to change the set list up all the time because it makes everybody's life a little bit more difficult. The 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 act of uh, yeah digging into the vault on a daily basis and trying to resurrect songs that have been sort of lying in a dormant state is is uh, 
it can be scary for the band because we're never really quite sure if you're going to be able to play the song from beginning to end. But in in yeah. in inserting that spontaneity into the set, you sort of keep yourself feeling uh, very much awake, and and that it's a living process instead of just being in this sort of um, you know sort of robotic repetition of doing the same the same show night after night i had for you know i i, I i'd forgotten you were at sars talk because i was looking this up mm-hmm. and that i was thinking wow that's 20 years ago now that's yeah god god it's flowing by but what an experience i mean you were you're kind of just starting out at the time um your your way of approaching a live show i mean once you've done that mm-hmm. i get the impression that everything else sort of i mean the, the stage fright of it at least would might go away completely at one point uh given just the eyes that were on that particular show Oh, I mean that. I still, I still wake up in a cold sweat from time to time, thinking back about that those fourteen minutes on stage. Because I don't even think we played for fourteen minutes. I think we were up there for eleven. We had fifteen minutes, but we were so nervous. We played so fast. <laughs> You're like uh, a speed we, metal band. It was yeah. just an absolute speed metal from start <laughs> to finish. And uh, yeah, I think we've never played for an audience, and we will most likely never play for an audience that big again. So if you're looking to cut your teeth as a young band and, and sort of, you know, break down the, the, the sort of stage fright barrier, then that's a good way of, that's a good trial by fire for sure. Yeah. And, and, and then there were other big sort of big programming. I was, there was the Olympics, there was uh, Sidney Crosby and his cup. I'd forgotten about that one. I mean, there was some pretty interesting, you got to put some pretty interesting requests over that period of time to do stuff that was very public and, and, and very Canadian. And as you mentioned earlier, growing up in Montreal, especially as an English Montreal, English speaking Montrealer can be uh you can kind of have your own little world. And all of a sudden you were thrust into kind of, mm-hmm. you know, straight up Canadian. <laughs> You know, and it's funny that you say that that because that is very true, sort of almost learning what it means to be Canadian in a in a in a very sort of uh, in a very public setting. Because to be honest with you, I think we have one version, our own version. It's different now in Montreal than it was. It's different everywhere. There's Mm -hmm. so much more sort of interconnectivity between between places and exchange of ideas and identity. And uh, but it wasn't wasn't like that in those days necessarily and it was and it was very much about sort of going out there and discovering the the similarities and differences between Regina Saskatchewan and Montreal in a in a first hand way and and again in a sort of in a pretty fiery way through the vehicle of playing music in front of audiences it's a great way to learn about sort of what where you live and the people who who you share the country with but also you know again those similarities but also sometimes the the wide gap between your experience of something and somebody else's yeah and our 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 impressions of each other are often kind of strange too Mm -hmm. i mean having my mom actually worked for the cbc so she was she she worked in other parts of Canada. So as a kid, I got to sort of live in Edmonton for a while, go to Charlottetown. And I was amazed to come back to Montreal because, of course, it always feels like home. Uh, but it is different. I mean, this is a vast land, even though we all sound essentially the same. We tend to listen to the same stuff. We tend to be very united culturally, but but individually. Like if you go to those different communities, you're right, it is it is different. And we don't always see our artists that way. I mean, if someone had said, hey, where's Sam Roberts from? I imagine a lot of people might say, oh, I'm in Toronto. You know, yeah. sort of it's just one of those things, you know. Yeah, and I think it is. It was always kind of a strange and interesting phenomenon to us that we were, that we took on this sort of this handle as this like ultra Canadian band, 
given where we grew up and how we grew up and how little we knew about Canada. I think it was the the denim the the full denim tuxedo that might have right broken the, down that door. But we were also and, the you know, and they were yeah. and we were singing about it though. Mm-hmm. You know, we were singing about it in uh, in a in a sort of while we were discovering it. And I think maybe people reacted to to that that we were kind of going through this a bit of a an awakening, you know, going through this awakening while singing about uh, about it in sort of real time, and still doing the same right at this point in time. I mean, as as it's evolved, you obviously that that whole vision of what it means to be a Canadian artist or a Montreal artist continues mm-hmm. to change. As you've Absolutely. mentioned, it's much more open now. Yeah. Uh, you know, the internet has done a lot of that, but it feels so much more. Um, I, I you know I don't I can't even find the word anymore when I go back to Montreal. It just feels so much more part of everything, you know, mm-hmm. part of that whatever that global whole is. Yeah, it, and 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 again, I think that that speaks volumes to where sort of where our our world has come to the place that it's come to, and certainly the world that my kids are growing up in yeah. is not one where they're sort of aware that, or maybe even not aware that they're living in this sort of like literally an island mentality here in in Montreal, and that if you wanted to be connected to the rest of the world, you had to get on the on the four hundred one and drive to Toronto to see how the other half lived, sort of thing. It's 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 not like that anymore uh, in the same way. But we were we were trying to make music about about that and being drawn this idea of being drawn to the to other parts of the country and other ways of living and seeing the world and and it was a it was a very exciting time for us. And I think maybe people responded to that enthusiasm that they were hearing in the songs that we were writing. Yeah. What's it like for your kids? I mean, you were just talking about your dad earlier in 74 with his, you know, with that, with the, what we mm-hmm. all know, we've all seen that. We've all seen that photo of our parents or, well, <laughs> or uncle or so on with the, with the, you know, the flared, pa- the, mm-hmm. sort of the flared trousers and the big collar and the glass, that sort of dark glasses looking like they were having a grand old time, usually with a stubby somewhere, a stubby yeah. lying yeah. around in the photo. <laughs> what, what's it like for your kids now? Do they listen to your music? Do they like it? Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> of course. Of course. Yeah. No, they don't listen. They they listen to, uh, you know, Drake and The Weeknd and you know SZA. They have <laughs> absolute. Once in a while, they'll say like, they'll they'll hear one of my songs. Like if I'm working on, they'll be like, "Oh, is this you?" And it'll be like, <laughs> "Wow!" It'll be our our biggest hit, and they'll be like, "Oh, is this you, Dad?" I'm like, "Yeah, this is Dad. This is." So it's an endless source of. When he was cool. Yeah, when I was cool, Uh, and yeah, it's an endless source of of frustration and shame. It must be tough to have your toughest critics in the house under the roof when you're trying to sort of get your your critic is too critic is too kind a word. It's apathy. Is even it's worse. Wow. Uh, we asked this question. <laughs> that's that's very funny. I, I think that changes. I mean, I've spoken to other. I mean, I was just I was interviewed Randy Bachman a while back. He's out on tour with his son, obviously. So eventually, I think the kids kind of come around. But you're right. When they're teens, there's no way. There's yeah. no way, right? It's like anything. Yeah, I'm, gonna you have to, I'm gonna have to hold on for a while for this to come around. It might be. It might skip a generation. It might be the grandkids. <laughs> Who knows? The, I don't the know. Grad kids out on tour exactly. with, with the Sam Roberts band. Uh, <laughs> we had this interesting conversation a while back about the first record we had bought. And, you know, listeners talk about that stuff. And I think mine was La Freak by Chic, but I'm I'm a few years your senior. As I've mentioned, I'm on the other side of the 50 and you're 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 moving towards it. Uh, I, I read about yours and I thought, how oh, what a cool choice for a, a very young kid to buy 
first, especially that mm-hmm. year when there were so many other options out there. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about men at work business as usual. Absolutely. Uh, which is to this day such a great record. So many good songs on it, you know, aside from Who Can It Be Now and and Land Down Under. It's right. Overplayed, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. But there was just the way the record sounds and the, the production on the record. And I think those, for sure, those two songs. And it was in the day of where the music video could literally reach into your life and, you know, pull you into another world. It felt like. And and for I was I had been on a trip to South Africa actually, and my cousins were all playing anything from Duran Duran to Michael Jackson was ubiquitous at the time, obviously. But there was something about the way that Men at Work songs, something kind of some of the kind of quirkiness to it as well that I was really really drawn to. And so yeah, I, I took my leaf raking money and went and bought that up at the Fairview Shopping Center. Oh, you know? I've been there. Yeah, I've been to yeah. that record store. Yeah, I, I ended up my... working at that record store. Did you really? For a couple of years. Yeah. You worked you worked the, you worked at the record was it was it a discus or what it was, was it? Discus. That, that's it was right. Discus. Yeah, that was my first job. Wow, that's a great first job. Yeah, it was unfortunately right at the end of the discus empire so the the, oh. the, the selection was quite limited and I used to just tell people to go to HMV but uh, <laughs> Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Teens, right? Like that's unless, the, unless you're here for Color Me Bad, in which case we have plenty. Yes. But if you're, if you're looking for any imports, you <laughs> any, might want to exactly. get on the commuter train and go yeah. downtown. Yeah, that's uh, But what a cool, you're right. I've been at work. That was a really, I mean, part of it was just that it was eclectic. And with so much sort of formulaic stuff that was out at the time, it was a reminder that something that wasn't at all formulaic could be popular and could mm-hmm. be loved, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the 80s was uh, amazing for that. If you would you know the, the the bands that could be mentioned in the same conversation were 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 sometimes as sort of dissimilar as you could ever you know describe and and yet as young people especially maybe teenagers had their more sort of fixed lanes when it came to you know what was cool and what was cool if you listen to this well you can't listen to that but when yeah. you're a kid growing up in the 80s at that time it was you know open season on just about just about anything and and to this day you know, that that sort of informs how I listen to music and definitely how I go about making music. Yeah, and it shows too. I mean, I was thinking back to that time where, you know, you, you would play with, your friends would be over, you'd play Steve Miller, Chicago, Lionel Richie, Grandmaster Flash, Ann Clark, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like, uh, you know, all kinds of obscure stuff from Britain uh, and then all kinds of very top 40-ish stuff. Then you might put on a something that was popular with your with the kids you went to school with who spoke French, you know, Starmania or something. It was mm-hmm. it was a real, real hodgepodge. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it does lead to some as you I mean, it leads to lots of musical avenues as you as you get older, I'd imagine. Yeah. And, and that's a good thing to be able to draw on, you know, that sort of I guess that open mindedness or willingness to accept the eclecticness of your tastes when it comes to trying to find new ways to to write songs. Well, Sam, uh, good luck with the tour. Good luck with the adventures of Ben Black. Thank I you. really appreciate your time. Thank you Thank so much. Thank you, Ben. Yeah, it's been great talking to you, Ben. Thanks. Yeah, that song will bring back some memories for people of a certain age, <laughs> certainly me. And it's part because uh, this great New York Times article was out a while ago called, and the title is, Yes, People Will Pay $27,500 for an Old Rocky Tape. Here's why. Collectors are finding that their childhood has a price, and it's going up. When the future is frightening, it's boom times at 
it's boom times at the Nostalgia Factory. So, of course, pop culture has really driven collecting um, in, of late and things that are, you wouldn't necessarily think were collectible are now, right? I mean, or the prices people will pay for something like a VHS of Rocky Three in its original packaging. So it's sealed, right? You, that's the whole point. It's sealed. It was never played. That's the one that cost 27500 Before we get there, though, I did ask you for your favorite pop songs of all time because Rolling Stones just put out their top 100. My Girl by The Temptations, um, Dancing Queen by ABBA, and I Want to Dance with Somebody Who Loves Me by Whitney Houston. They picked that as their greatest pop song of all time. I'm not sure about that one. Uh, Blue Man says, blame it on the rain. You can never go wrong with a little, little Millie Vanilli, uh, right? <laughs> and Jason had a really, um, really nice note that he said. He said, oh, the days of way back when music was almost taken for granted. You never knew what was coming next from your favorite artists, tunes of who might next be the big star on the scene. You two, Men at Work, Bruce Springsteen, Chicago, and so on. It all went by what tunes you were in the mood for. Soft rock, metal, pop, and this even one hit wonders like A Flock of Seagulls. I'm glad you mentioned A Flock of Seagulls. We always play that song for Shane, of course, I Ran by A Flock of Seagulls. Yeah, we, I, the one thing I miss, and I, this is just me being old and nostalgic, but the one thing I miss about the radio when we were younger is how it like, – if you look at a top 40 chart from 1982, there is absolutely everything on it. There's R&B. There's punk. There's, you know, there's rap. There's country. There's soft rock. There's prog rock. There's everything on that chart so you could listen to all you could like 15 different kinds of music um and play all those singles and it was totally cool and that was great i mean it was it feels more fragmented a little bit these days but that's just you know that's just the age talking so as i was mentioning about rocky three that video cassette vhs can you imagine 27 grand for that you know People are paying a lot for stuff now. Nostalgia often drives um, what goes on in the collectibles field. So we continue our series on collectors and collecting tonight with how much the world of collectibles has expanded over the past few decades and just how much pop culture has driven that. Now, of course, just about every aspect of pop, pop culture these days could be collected and curated, you name it. Uh, but my next guest is really on the forefront of that. You want to know who sold those Rocky tapes? They did. He works with the largest auction house in the U.S. Jeremy Allen is Associate Director of Pop Culture at Heritage Auctions, and he joins me now. Jeremy, thank you. Hey, thank you for having me on. You have a really fascinating background of this because you've both been a collector and came from a family of collectors, and you also understand the public relations side of it and the creative creative side of it. So uh, you bring a lot to the table in this one. Uh, what your What is your earliest memories of collecting and why you were attracted to it? Uh, I actually... Both of my parents had the collecting disease, so I think that's where it started. It kind of runs in the family. Uh, my dad is a huge Dallas Cowboy collector, and he had anything and everything with the Dallas Cowboy logo on it, and that goes back to the 60s. And my mom kind of was one of those ones that loved antiquing and finding things. So, you know, growing up in, in that era, at the same time being at the age when trading cards hit a peak in the 90s at that time, uh, you know, I was into trading cards big time back in, in 88 is kind of when I started collecting. And I had a small card shop at one of my dad's shops when I was younger. And uh, when I was, I think, junior high into high school, I had a trading card store. And it all just kind of comes from just that. I guess I have the, my parents passed along the disease to me. 
Yeah. It's interesting because, of course, sports memorabilia, I mean, I grew up in the 70s and the 80s, so I remember that well. And obviously, there was always the antiquing and art and all those other things. But you've also been around to watch collecting and what is collectible change so much. It feels like it's changed so much in the past uh, 30 quarter century, 30 years to, as to what is coveted and what a collection can look like. Yeah, you know, what I, I and some of the trends right now, it's 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 the stuff that people connect to that have nostalgia with kind of and that that you know, I guess that young age, junior high age, the 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 a lot of it's pop culture based now because of the influence of music and TV and movies and stuff. So a lot of those those items that you kind of touch and have your full attention when you're younger. Um, because your responsibility is low at that age, right? And they, that's that you build a connection with this stuff, and 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 then you uh, one day you grow up and you have adult money and you can go back and get the stuff you didn't have. And I see a lot of that happening. Yeah. What are some of the examples of some of the things that you've seen, um, just in terms of what people are willing to pay for stuff that might surprise people? Because I think a lot of a lot of people understand sort of you know art, fine art, and porcelain and all those things, antiques. Um, but there's a lot of stuff that changes hands now for an awful lot of money that might surprise people in terms of what people are willing to pay for rare pieces of pop culture, for instance. Well, if you're familiar with the Garbage Pal Kids. I am. I remember them well. I think I think I bent them all, unfortunately, but yes. I um, just sold the original very first art piece for the, the first card that never got made for over $100,000. Wow. So, you know, that kind of just, and, and that is a property that's known, but not as mainstream as some other bigger properties. So to kind of show you where something like that is at the same time, we have, you know, magic, the gathering cards and Pokemon cards going into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, you know, I have a auction coming up that has the best versions of the 1977 top star Wars cards. Oh wow! And one of those cards in there is a sticker of Luke Skywalker and it, is graded a PSA 10, and it's the only 10 that exists in the entire world. So for anyone to own the best possible set where every card's a 10, there's only one person that can do that. And because of that, we're thinking that items could go over $150,000 just for that one card. Just for the one card. I remember those cards, of course. I mean, part of it is as you get older, too, if you were a little more uh, nonchalant with the stuff that you bought back then, you always, I mean, not that you feel bad because it was fun to play with it at the time, but you look at it now and go, wow, I should have just taken one of those and put it aside. But, you know, hindsight, hindsight. Well, you know, and the, 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 an example with those those tops Star Wars cards in 77, Today, we when we watch a movie, we first of all we have things coming at us in twenty different ways between the phones and social apps and the the, the different uh, movie apps and everything and, and actually doing things. Well, back in seventy seven, everyone watched the same couple of channels and listened to the same music, and they didn't have a ways to watch anything. So when the movie was over in seventy seven, the only way that you could relive that movie is buying these trading cards. So that's why they were so popular. You couldn't go back and watch a clip on YouTube, or you didn't have a VHS copy of it in nineteen seventy seven. So these trading cards were very important of reliving the scenes and seeing the characters again. Yeah, and the and the action figures. I remember my I had a cousin who had the whole collection. I mean, it, it, it's it's kind of hard now, given how fragmented everything is, to 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 explain just how focused everything was back then, as you explained, as you pointed out. It's interesting too to see now that as different, and you mentioned it already, as different generations hit that ability to pay more for stuff that they might want, you see what is collectible start to shift as well. So, you know, for a while it was 70s stuff, then it was 80s stuff. Now we're into 90s and maybe even later as those generations hit adulthood and think, hey, I can finally get what that thing that I'd always coveted when I was 13. 
Yeah. And, you know, what does that look like in the future? I don't know. But, you know, I feel like there still has to be some tangible collectors for Minecraft and for Fortnite, you know, 30 years down the road. What, what are those items that are not, you know, online that are, you know, that are tangible physical assets that can come back and relive some of those things? And there'll be some of those items that people come back and we, we don't know what those things are going to be yet. And we don't know the rarity to them until people start coming at them and tracking them down. Yeah, that's an interesting thing, because in some ways you have to use everything that you know, both about collecting and all the other stuff that you've learned over the years in business to almost try to predict where things are going as far as collecting is concerned and see where the next trend is, see what's out there that mightn't be worth a ton, that is going to be worth a ton in the not too, too distant future. Yeah, well, we're doing a test actually this Friday um, in one of our signature auctions. We're having, I think, 30 to 40 Funko Pops in it for the first time and um and a signature auction are are, are are more prized items more rare items in funco um there are a lot that were only released at events that only have 100 or less copies or 500 less copies or that are autographed and are pretty rare so that's an example of kind of one of these emerging categories and where does it land and a lot of those funco pops are kind of mass produced but there are some that are very hard to find and very hard to get uh jeremy you're gonna i'm gonna show my age now what is a funko pop um they are um they're kind of a collectible figurine uh -huh. and they basically have had they have a license deal with almost anything that you can think of on earth from every tv show to movie and they basically have this kind of standard figure that they uh dress up or you know or play with to make you know the uh, the drawings and stuff on them to make them resemble these different shows so they have them for lord of the rings and they have them for baseball players and they have them for uh the tv show friends you can just imagine a character uh from you know dragon ball z and they would have a funko pop that they're all based on the same structure and then they kind of mold them to to look like those characters um, jeremy i've noticed i mean of course when i was growing up collectibles meant something physical right you you own something and you put you had a shelf for it or you had a case for it or anything along those lines and it feels like as we're moving ahead that and, and everything that we do is becoming more digital and more online i'm wondering where collectibles go then because i've always associated collectibles with having a physical collection of something but that clearly can't be the case forever oh uh, well <laughs> i i think you know obviously that leads into uh, nfts and that kind of stuff and um you know i definitely see a, a place for it in the future and and i I feel like it's going to be a hybrid thing, Ben, where uh, your collectibles might have a tie-in to something digital. I mean, you, it, I, I don't know where it's going, but I do know that there's nothing like having the physical thing. I mean, we just had a um, an auction, and we just sold the original Rogue One, Red One from Star Wars right. for two point six million dollars, <laughs> and and uh, that was that just happened on Saturday, actually. And, you know, the, there's something about having what that represents. So I, I think there's always going to be some version of a tangible asset. I think that going in the future, there's going to be tie-ins into kind of the, you know, tracking the device. And I think some of the stuff is pretty cool when somebody creates something really nice, like the original Garbage Pal piece, if that yeah. was tied to an NFT. And that original artist was able to keep making money on this thing later in life instead of doing it that first time for 50 bucks and never seeing a dollar again, right? Right. So. I think there's some pretty interesting things when it comes to, to, to where that's going in the future. Um, I know that we have a team internally that is looking at that and playing with it and, uh, and working on some stuff. And I know they tried some stuff in the past. I'm not 
totally aware of what they're trying and going and you know they'll let us know as they're working on it but we have 800 people in here ben there's all kinds of stuff going on around yeah here. for you do you have do you have any i mean this is this is a this is a, a tough question tell me about the greatest things you've ever held in terms of collector's items things that the ones that stick out when someone said tell me the greatest thing you've ever held what might it be well you know not all of it's value related mm. Um, I have, I've held Gizmo, one of the live. Yep. I, I just think that's cool. Uh, that kind of, you know, from Gremlins, that just yep. kind of is very cool. Uh, you know, because we deal with so many high end entertainment things, you know, getting to see, you know, Rogue One in a, an original 77 Stormtrooper outfit is pretty cool. Um, getting to, uh, hold a, uh, Declaration of Independence when there's uh, one of the few copies that remain. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's just stuff like that. I mean, I don't know. I, I always go back to Gizmo. I think he's pretty cool. And, and a lot of the props from movies I see all the time from like Beetlejuice and we have the, you know, Kate and Leo Titanic outfits, which I think is pretty crazy. We have the uh, box of chocolates from Forrest Gump here right now. Oh, wow. So, you, you know, I, every one of these things kind of give you goosebumps in different ways. Um, you know, but I've seen so much stuff. It definitely does take something to get my attention sometimes. And it's, you just kind of get numb to it a little bit, but the, I think Gizmo would, is one of my favorite pieces. It's not a very valuable piece. I think it's a 20 to $30,000 piece. It's not one of those crazy million dollar things, but it's just, it just rem- reminds me of, you know, being a kid and watching that movie. And, um, I think, uh, one of, uh, my colleagues Right. And well. Yeah, I mean, I was around then, too. Those are all movies with Mark Daniel. Jeremy, thanks so much for your time tonight. Really hey, happy on any time, Ben. I appreciate it.